Joshua chapter 10 is a very interesting chapter, really. Um, there's a lot of repetitive detail in the latter part of the chapter, as will be the case over the next several chapters in this book of Joshua, because the beginning of the taking of the land starts really here, although he, they've already taken the city of Jericho, they've taken the city of Ai, uh, they have made a, a, a covenant with the people from Gibeah, and uh, that covenant was something that they shouldn't have done. We talked about that briefly last time. I just want to kind of launch from that point because it's kind of important as we look at the details of chapter 9. Remember we saw that uh, the Gibeonites had deceived Joshua into thinking they were from a very, very far distant uh, nation and uh, they convinced Joshua to make a covenant with them. Now, Joshua made a mistake in this. It was up to Joshua as a leader to make sure that uh, all of the tribes in the land of Canaan would be totally, utterly destroyed. That was the command of God to him. And he didn't apparently seek the Lord. He just trusted in his own senses when he looked at the circumstances, looked at the details, the things that the Gibeonites were saying appeared to be without refute. But they tricked him. And uh, unfortunately, he fell into that trap and made a covenant with them instead of destroying the Gibeonites. They were part of the nation of the Hivites, remember, and they were to be utterly destroyed according to the Lord because they were a uh, people that were steeped in idolatry. And in that covenant they made with Joshua, the result for them was good. Instead of his annihilating them, he made them to be the servants of the Lord at the tabernacle and ultimately at the temple when it would be built in the city of Jerusalem. And there they were doing that very thing even in David's time. In fact, if you look forward into the history of the time of David, you'll find that the Gibeonites played a very important role in David's kingdom. He had some of his mighty men were the Gibeonites. They were very trustworthy and uh, very helpful to David in his conquests uh, in that region while he was reigning in Jerusalem. So, in effect, God turned that kind of disastrous decision by Joshua into a blessing. It worked out very well for the Gibeonites because they were indeed spared and they always remembered the, the kindness of Joshua. And God used the fact that Joshua made that mistake to bring about a very important relationship. And in that relationship, Joshua had made a commitment to not only be uh, fair to them in regards to not taking any of their lives, but he was obligated to protect them as well. And that really plays into the hand of God very, very well in this chapter that we're looking at tonight. In chapter 10, some of the other Canaanite nations were very upset when they found out that the Gibeonites had made a contract or a covenant with Joshua. And it really bothered them to the extent that one of their own would unite with 
Joshua and potentially join Joshua in his conquest of the land. It angered them so much that they began, according to what is written in chapter 10, to form an alliance among several of those nations together to invade not Joshua, but to invade instead the Gibeonites, to take revenge upon them for having turned against them and in favor of uh, the Israelites. So that's where the story begins in chapter 10 as we continue moving forward. Let's keep that in mind. The Gibeonites played a very important role in this because, as I said, God used it. God made it so that Joshua could have a very, very successful invasion of the southern portion of the land of Canaan as a result of those nations attempting to retaliate against the Gibeonites. And we'll see that as we move forward. Verse 1 of chapter 10 begins with the words, Now it came to pass when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had taken Ai and had utterly destroyed it as he had done to Jericho and its king, so he has done to uh, Ai and its king and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, that they feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities and because it was greater than Ai and all of its men were mighty. So again, they were fearful of the fact that the Gibeonites would now have been joining forces with Joshua and increase the likelihood of Joshua being able to defeat all of those other Canaanite nations. So it was a real important decision that the Gibeonites will be making here as we move forward. But before we do, I'd like to take note of a couple of things. First of all, in the very first verse, it says, again, now it came to pass when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had taken Ai, and etc. The name Adonai Zedek is important. The words in Hebrew mean Lord of Righteousness. And he is the king of the city of Jerusalem. Now, this is the very first mention of Jerusalem by that name. Uh, it's been known earlier as Jebus, but it is known here as Jerusalem. The very first occurrence of the name Jerusalem, and it's a very important, obviously, city, still is today, has always been for the people of Israel. But the man who is a king, his name is Adonai Zedek. And if you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, chapter 14, we read of another king of that area. He was known as the king of Salem, which again was the city of Jerusalem back in the day of Abraham. And his name was Melchizedek. His name means king of righteousness. And of course, we see here that this king, very similar name, but he's not at all righteous in any sense of the word. It's kind of a, a, a sad commentary of the fact that the city of Jerusalem started with a very, very righteous king. And although the name continued, the religion of the people of the Jebusites who occupied that city were nothing but another form of idolatry that was common among the people of the Canaanites. It's interesting also to note that that city, Jerusalem, Jebus, was never con conquered until the time of David, many, many years later. None of the Israelites were able to take the city. But this man, Adonai Zedek, 
has aroused the suspicions of all of the other Canaanite peoples, not only against Israel, but against the Gibeonites as well, because he feared them, because they were so uh, very powerful as a city nation. Uh, he says it was like one of the royal cities. In other words, apparently they had its own king, and they, they were large enough, larger than the city of Ai, and they were perhaps one of the strongest cities in that mountain region north of the Dead Sea. So it says they feared them greatly because Gibeon was a great city. And so it says in verse 3, Therefore Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jamuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, and Deber, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me that we may attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. Now these nation groups are all in the southern part of the kingdom. Joshua and his troops have already split the land in two segments by conquering the central portion of the area of Canaan. They were now able to focus on the southern kingdoms that were existing in the land of Canaan. Now keep in mind, if you know your history of the wilderness journeyings, I hope you do, but in the wilderness journeyings, remember they came to the southern border of the land of Canaan and Moses sent in 12 spies. Joshua and Caleb were among those 12. They were the only two that gave a good report and the other 10 gave a very negative report. And the negative report consisted of the fact that they were very, very afraid of the people in that region of the land of Canaan because giants were in the land. The giants were still in the land when Joshua invaded. They were known as the Nephilim and a few other of the Anakim also were as well as a few others, very, very big men, and they were fearful. The people of Israel that went into the land to spy out the land that were sent by Moses came back and said, we're like grasshoppers before them. They were so fearful, they convinced the entire nation to not do what God had commanded them to do. That's why they went into that wilderness journeying of 40 years there in the wilderness until that first generation was completely annihilated. But now Joshua has entered the land and he's going into that very territory that those men originally having visited that area thought that it would be impossible for them to conquer. Now we're finding that God is in every step of the way that Joshua is going to be taking in the conquest of this portion of the land of Canaan. It says in verse 5, Therefore the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jamus, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered together and went up, they and all their armies, and camped before Gibeon, and made war against it. So again, they're retaliating against the Gibeonites for their having made a contract with Joshua. And they want to eliminate Gideon, Gibeon first before they attack the Israelites who are now in the territory where they had encamped in Gilgal, south of where uh, the Gibeonites were located by about 20 miles near the area of Jericho and Ai. So now they're going to attack this city-state of Gibeon from the north. 
So they circle around and come uh, and set themselves up in battle array. They're a great army. They're not to be scoffed at. They have a great deal of power. They have horses. They have chariots. They have uh, swords and spears and all kinds of weaponry that they are able to bring with them. And it's a very frightful thing for the Gibeonites to see them gathering against them in the north part of their territory. So it says in verse 6, And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp at Gilgal, saying, Do not forsake your servants. Come up to us quickly. Save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the mountains have gathered together against us. So Joshua is going to continue with his covenant arrangement. He's not going to back out of that. That's a godly thing. He is going to do what he has promised them. He will defend them. So, it tells us in verse 7, Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have delivered them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. That's a great promise from the Lord. He is saying to Joshua, again, don't be fearful, be of good courage. This is something that he's been telling Joshua more than once. Very often, in fact, he's had to tell Joshua over and over again, I'm with you, Joshua. I have given you already this people into your hand. That's important. Again, in verse 8, he says, I have delivered them into your hand. That's past tense. That means he's already done it. You know, when we in the New Testament talk about our being overcomers, it's a good thing. We are overcomers because Christ has overcome the devil and all of his cohorts. We are indeed, because we're his as well, overcomers. But we're also told that we are more than conquerors. And when you realize the concept that is being presented by that phrase, more than conquerors, basically what it's saying is this. As a conqueror, once you have conquered the land, you can say that you have done that. I have conquered the people group that I have attacked. I am a conqueror. When we're told that we are more than conquerors, basically what that's saying is, before the battle even begins, we have already conquered. And that's exactly what Joshua is being told here by the Lord. You, Joshua, and your people with you are more than conquerors because I have already delivered them into your hand. It's a great thing of confidence that is being spoken by the Lord to Joshua as he now begins the battle that will ensue as a result of his being obedient to God and knowing that he's going forth in the power of the Lord strengthens him and gives him the courage to move forward. Now, keep in mind, again, he's in Gilgal. It is a southern region near the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is about 1,300 feet below sea level. The distance between Gilgal and Gibeon is about 20 or 22 miles, and it's all uphill. He's bringing his troops in an uphill trajectory to a battle that's in the mountains north of Shechem, northeast of Shechem. And it's a very, very difficult passage. Um, even today, uh, there are passageways uh, from the Jordan River through the mountain ranges 
into Jerusalem and into other areas of Judea and and, uh, Canaan, uh, now known as the uh, uh, land of Israel. But in that day, it was all Canaan. But it's a very, very difficult passageway. Um, And the army, in many cases, had to go up narrow passages uh, where cliffs on either side were very treacherous with the distance down below them was several hundred feet and a cliff that their footing was off and if they weren't careful they would be in trouble and they had to do this at night so this is quite an amazing thing that they're embarking on trusting in the Lord because God said I have given them into your hand so it says in verse 9 therefore Joshua came upon them suddenly having marched all night from Gilgal so the Lord routed them before Israel, killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them along the road that goes to Beth Horon, and struck them down as far as Azekah and Makedah. And it happened as they fled before Israel and were on the descent of Beth Horon that the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. So God did exactly as he had said to Joshua. I have delivered them. He was able to destroy more of the army of that coalition of forces that came against Gibeon by the hail that fell than Joshua and his men were able to kill by the sword. So it was a great routing of those men all the way down to Makedah, which is in the southern portion of the present-day Israel, the land of Canaan then. So, again, it's interesting that God used a miraculous event to assist the Israelites in their victory. When he says he's doing something for you, you should know that he indeed is doing something. And Many, many times, the things that he does for his people are indeed supernatural. Over and over again, throughout the Word of God, we see that evidenced. In this chapter, this is the first of two very, very supernatural events. Keep in mind, he says, that a hailstorm had apparently come at just the right time, and quite frankly, there are several theologians, even, who look at this, but... as well secular scientific studies that indicate that what they think must have happened is that uh, a storm suddenly came upon them and hailstones came down. That's acceptable to them. They don't have any problem with that. But the miracle is that the hailstones only came down on the enemy, not on Joshua's troops. So it was obviously a miracle. God performed a very, very important miracle before his people. And it enabled them to complete the task that they had started out to do. So as tired as they must have been, I can imagine how pumped they must have been when they saw God going before them and casting them down to the ground with huge hailstones, apparently large enough to kill those men. Now, you might think, well, can hailstones be that large to do such damage? Well, yes, of course they can. I've known of uh, several hailstorms 
in the areas of Texas and other parts of our own country where hailstones the size of golf balls were recorded. And it's also true that in the book of Revelation, if you know your, your, your reading of that great book, you'll find hailstones are again used by God, but this time they are going to be hailstones that will weigh up an entire talent, which is about 80 to 100 pounds of weight. Now, that's pretty damaging. I was listening to one uh, commenter who happened to want to make a demonstration of how a 100-pound hailstone might impact anyone. And he had one of his uh, elders carry a 100-pound weight onto his stage where he was standing, and he said, drop it from your waist, about three feet. And when he dropped it, there was no question but that 100-pound weight, which apparently the stage was able to still keep from breaking apart, made a terrible, terrible loud noise. And he said, imagine hailstones that heavy coming from miles above and traveling at 32 feet per second per second, coming down with a full force, 100 plus mile an hour traveling onto the surface of the earth. What destruction that will be. Well, these hailstones probably weren't quite that large, but they certainly were large enough to do the damage that God intended for them to do. So this is indeed a great miracle. Again, it only fell on the enemies of the Lord. So then it says, after they had followed after them and chased them all the way down to Mecca, well, the job hadn't been completely finished. Joshua knew that he had to completely eliminate this army, this threat in the southern part of the land of Canaan. And in daylight was an issue. He wanted to be able to finish the job while it was still day. So what would we do in a situation like that? Well, of course, we would respond just like Joshua did. Sun, stop moving in the sky. Moon, stop moving in the sky. Well, that's quite a command, isn't it? Joshua didn't say, Lord, would you please stop the sun? He just simply made the command to the sun and the moon, stop where you are. That's what it says. It says in verse 12, Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, till the people had revenge upon their enemies. This is one of the most remarkable, if not the most remarkable, miracle in all of the word of God up to this point at least, it certainly is. The Red Sea parting, the Jordan Sea uh, River parting, they were amazing miracles. The provision of manna in the wilderness for 40 years, well, certainly those were wonderful miracles as well. There were many wonderful and very awesome miracles, but this is an amazing thing in the sense that God responded to a man so that the man that called out for the sun and the moon to stop was able to finish the job that God had called him to do. And so, as we look at this, you have to wonder, how did that happen? Well, if you think about the possibilities, and many people have, there are probably a half a dozen different things that men have come up with to try to explain what took place here, none of which really is at all likely. 
The truth of the matter is, we don't know how God did it. Whether he stopped the rotation of the earth, that's a possibility. Some would say, though, that if he stopped the rotation of the earth so suddenly, because we're rotating at about a thousand miles per hour, a sudden stop would have caused a catastrophe with everything on the earth by the inertial forces that would be tearing us away from the surface of the world. That can't be done. But then again, we're talking about God. And if God says he did it, then who are we to say it's impossible? God created the heavens and the earth. God is God. He's not limited like we are. Did he stop the earth from rotating? Or did he simply just simply move the sun forward in its path in the galactical realm? Galactical realm. So that's a possibility as well. In that case, it wouldn't have impacted the rotation of the earth. He just simply moved the sun to a different position so that it would always stay ahead of the rotation of the earth, thereby continuing to shine in that very long day. Well, there are all kinds of other possibilities. As far as God is concerned, um, I don't think he was limited to any one of those explanations that man has. But it's interesting to conjecture about that particular day because it tells us, interestingly, in the latter part of verse 13, is this not written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. So a whole day, 24 hours, it says about a whole day. The implication is it wasn't quite a full day. So what about this? Is there any explanation for that in the biblical account? Well, not an explanation, but there is a place in the Bible that speaks of a portion of a day that seems to complete a full day when you add it to this event in Joshua chapter 10. Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 20. 2 Kings chapter 20 is during the time of Hezekiah. Now, Hezekiah's life has been extended by a miracle that God had performed for him in response to his plea to not allow him to die. God answered that prayer by uh, Isaiah the prophet. And it tells us that he would be given another 15 years to live. And in the process of his revealing that to Hezekiah, it tells us in verse 6 of chapter 20 of Second Kings, and I will add to you 15 years, Isaiah speaking, through for the Lord, I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend the city for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Then Isaiah said, Take a lump of figs. So they took and laid it on the boil, and he recovered. And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, What is the sign that the Lord will heal me, and that I shall go up to the house of the Lord on the third day? Then Isaiah said, This is a sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do the thing which he has spoken, shall the shadow go forward ten degrees or go backward ten degrees? I was talking about a sundial. The shadow on the sundial, does Hezekiah want it to move forward ten degrees or move backward ten degrees? So it says in verse 10, And Hezekiah answered, It's an easy thing for the shadow to go 
down 10 degrees or forward 10 degrees. No, but let the shadow go backward 10 degrees. That would be more of a spectacle. That would mean that the day would have to be reversed by 10 degrees of time, about an hour or so, or perhaps somewhere in that neighborhood. That's exactly what took place. So Isaiah the prophet, it says, cried out to the Lord and he brought the shadow 10 degrees backward by which it had gone down on the sundial of Ahaz. So there you have it. We have a record of, in two places, a full day, apparently, of the sun not rising and setting. Of course, we all know that the sun doesn't rise and set. We just use that. That's part of our vernacular, just as much as it was for them. Well, of course, we all know that the planet rotates and it also orbits the sun, but every day the planet rotates one full time around so that it appears as though the sun is rising or the moon is rising, but it's not really either of those. We just say that. And, of course, that's what the Word of God says also. If you have any doubt about the veracity of the Word of God and how scientific it might be, Consider the fact that Isaiah tells us that God hung the earth as a sphere in the heavens. And so we see from Isaiah's words that the earth isn't flat. You know, there are still some flat earthers around. And I think there's such foolish mentality involved in that. But they can believe what they want to believe. As far as what I believe... I believe the Word of God, and that's the way I'm going to stand, always. It may not be explainable. It may not be something we can understand how in the world or outside of this world any of these things could happen. But I do know this. God is able. And if I believe again that He was the one who created the heavens and the earth, and He holds all things together by the Word of His power, even today, I'm convinced that this is not a very difficult thing for God to do. So, having said that, let's continue in our study in this great book. The remainder of the chapter is going to focus on the continuation of Joshua in that southern portion of the land of Canaan. And there are several places that he is going to go to, and he is going to take every one of the cities that he comes toward but keep in mind that the majority of the armies that he would have faced inside those cities met him outside and they were completely destroyed because of their having moved against the land of Gibeon as they had chosen to do. That's a God thing. God arranged for that. Made it so much easier for Joshua to rout those armies and then continue southward in a complete sweep of that great land. And that's what the rest of the chapter is going to be recording for us. And also, chapter 11 and chapters following that will continue to talk about their conquest of the entire land of Canaan. But this part of chapter 10, from verse 14 on, is going to be talking about the continuation of the southern campaign. Chapter 11 will begin the northern campaign. And keep in mind that there's no record anywhere in these chapters where any one of the soldiers of the army of Israel were killed in battle. 
it may very well have happened, but there's no record of it. So here we have again in verse 14, again, a rereading what he said there about the sun. There has not been a day like that before it or after it that the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. That's the only explanation we need. The Lord chose to fight for Israel on their behalf. And he did a miraculous thing. And it's wonderful to see that he would do so. One last thought before we leave that portion. The writer of Joshua, probably this portion of Joshua was Joshua himself, mentions a book, the book of Jasher. The book of Jasher is also mentioned uh, elsewhere in the scriptures, but it's not a book that we have available to us in our present time. It was available to them. It was available in the time of David. But since those times, uh, the book has been lost. But it apparently was a record of events, a history, if you will, of all that was done on behalf of the people of Israel by the Lord. But we already have that record in this book that we have here before us. So there's not really any need for a copy of the book of Jasher to be found. But keep in mind that the record of the sun standing still was recorded in that book. So there was a time, at least during the time when this book was written and completed, that there was external evidence of the veracity of what is recorded here in this passage. Well, verse 15 continues to say, Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. But these five kings had fled and hidden themselves in a cave of Makeda. And it was told Joshua, saying, The five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Makeda. Those are the five kings that came together against Gibeon, and they were now hiding from Joshua. They were able to somehow get away from the battle and escape and hid themselves in caves not too far from where Joshua and his troops had arrived. And it was told, Joshua in verse 17 says, saying the five kings had been found hidden in the cave of Makeda. So Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. Uh, they put in prison, basically. And it says in verse 19, And do not stay there yourselves, but pursue your enemies and attack their rear guard. Do not allow them to enter their cities, for the Lord your God has delivered them into your hand. Now we'll find out later on that some of them did make it into their cities, but there weren't enough of them to defend the cities, as we will see. Well, verse 20 says, Then it happened while Joshua and the children of Israel made an end of slaying them with a very great slaughter, till they had finished, that those who escaped entered fortified cities. And all the people returned to the camp to Joshua at Makeda in peace. No one moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring out those five kings to me from the cave. And they did so and brought out all those five kings to him from the cave. And the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon were there. And so it was when they brought out those kings of, to Joshua that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said to the captains of the men of war who went with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. And they drew, drew near and put their feet on the necks. Now, 
it seems very strange that they would do that, but what they were basically doing is showing that they had indeed conquered these great kings, and they were now subject to the decision of Joshua to either let them live or not. And so it was a great point of humility for those kings. But also, it was a great time of uh, celebration for the people of Israel, because these were the kings that the people before they went into the land had feared greatly. These were the kings that they considered themselves to be grasshoppers before them. These were the kings that ultimately would be utterly defeated and destroyed by the people of Israel. Verse 25 says, Then Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. Sound familiar? It's exactly what God had been saying to Joshua, and the people of Israel needed to hear it as well. And again he adds, Be strong and of good courage, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. So it was a time of encouragement, a time of uh, affirmation that God was in this, and the people could trust God because of what had just taken place to continue to be with them throughout their conquest. They needn't fear. They needn't be uh, dismayed. They need to have good courage and be strengthened by the things that God has already done for them. You know, when I look back at my own Christian experience, I know of times that I can count, perhaps, some of them are more than I can count, perhaps, but I know that God has been with me through many situations. And I know that because I have seen God's hand in my life in the past that I can look forward to God continuing to provide for me, protect me, and use me for His glory as long as He allows. I'm convinced that we cannot be destroyed if our time to serve God is not yet complete. And as long as God intends to use us, there's nothing that Satan can do to thwart that plan of God. Oh, he can try. He can put stones and uh, obstacles in our way. He can cause us to stumble and cause us to sin, but we have an advocate with the Father. And that's the blessing that we have as believers. When we look at the conquest of this territory that is being achieved by the people of Israel, all the very many nations that are being completely destroyed, the armies completely ransacked and, and unable to fight against the onslaught of the people of God, that gives me great confidence in knowing that we have the same promises that God has given to us, that he goes before us, and that he will indeed be certain to let us be mindful of this one thing as we experience any trial, any difficulty, whatever it is that we must have to face, we can know, should know, must know that he has made us to be more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. That's the thing that we see, and it's really something that we should apply as we look at all of these various conquests. Every one of these conquests is an example to us, because these are given for our example to encourage us and to strengthen us because the fight is on in these present hour, days in which we live. But the battle is not ours. The battle is the Lord's. 
and we need to be reminded of that. We need to know that we can face the enemy with the confidence that God goes before us, as he did here. And every one of these city-states that are going to be uh, defeated are examples that we should look at and trust that God will do the same for us because he loves us just as much, if not more. I guess I can't say more because he loves all men equally. But he wants us to know that we are his people, just as they were his people. So it tells us in verse 26, And afterward Joshua struck them and killed them and hanged them on five trees, and they were hanging on the trees until evening. So it was at the time of the going down of the sun that Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees, cast them into the cave where they had been hidden, and laid large stones against the cave's mouth, which remained until this very day, at the time of the writing of this portion of Scripture. So they took them down at even, which was, by the way, a command through Moses to the people that anyone who hangs on a tree is accursed, and you're not to leave that one hanging on the tree after the evening comes. You're supposed to take that one down if they are hung on the tree and give that individual a proper burying, which is what Joshua has done. He's in obedience to the commands of God. Now the conquest of the southern part of the nation of Canaan is going to continue. It says in verse 28, On that day Joshua took Makeda and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed them, all the people who were in it. He let none remain. He also did to the king of Makeda as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua passed from Makeda and all Israel with him to Libna, and they fought against Libna. And the Lord delivered it and its people and its king into the hand of Israel. He struck it and all the people who were with it or in it with the edge of the sword. He let none remain in it, but did to his king as he had done to the king of Jericho. This is repeated over and over again. So this portion is kind of tedious in terms of the reading of it, but I want us to make sure that we understand every one of these cities is like an obstacle we face. And we can see the same thing that he did for them that he will also do for us, whatever that obstacle may be, because God is indeed leading us as we move forward. Verse 30 says, And the Lord delivered it into its king, and its king into the hand of Israel, and he defeated them, and he had done to them just as he had done to the king of Jericho. Verse 31, again, Then Joshua passed from Libna and all Israel with him to Lachish, and they encamped against it and fought against it. And the Lord delivered Lachish into the hand of Israel, who took it on the second day and struck it and all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, according to all that he had done to Libna. Now, some of these conquests take a little bit more time than others. Again, it's not how much time it takes the Lord to accomplish His will in us. It is always what He intends to do for His people. And He will win the battle. Verse 33 says, Then Horam, king of Gezer, came up to, keep, to help Lachish, and Joshua struck him and his people until he left him none remaining. From Lachish, Joshua passed to Eglon and all Israel with him, and they encamped against it and fought against it. They took it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword. All the people who were in it he utterly destroyed that day, according to all that he had done to Lachish. So Joshua went up from Eglon and all Israel with him to Hebron, 
and they fought against it. And they took it and struck it with the edge of the sword, its kings, all its cities, and all the people who were with it, in it. And he left none remaining, according to all that he had done to Eglon, but utterly destroyed it and all the people who were in it. Then Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, to Deber, and they fought against it. And he took it and its king and all its cities. They struck them with the edge of the sword and utterly destroyed all the people who were in it. He left none remaining, as he had done to Hebron, as he did to Deber, so he did to Deber, rather, and its king, and as he had done also to Libna and its king. So Joshua conquered all the land, the mountain country and the south and the lowland and the wilderness slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining, but utterly destroyed all that breathed as the Lord God of Israel had commanded. I want to stop there just for a moment because later on we're going to see that there were still a remnant of peoples in that region that did not get destroyed. But over and over again we read that he utterly destroyed all who were living. That seems to be very, very cruel, doesn't it? But it is, remember, because of the iniquity of the Amorites, the nations in that land were so very corrupt God gave them over 400 years, 400 years to turn from their wickedness, but they would not. They continued in their depravity. But take note of something else here that's very important. Although the people, for the most part, were destroyed, there's something that was not destroyed that should have been. And that something is what we know of as the high places. Over and over and over again, throughout the Old Testament scriptures, you are going to find mention of the high places. Those are places of worship of the Canaanite gods that should have been destroyed by Israel, but they were not. And why is that significant? Because they, that was the downfall of the nation of Israel. They chose to begin to look into the worship of the gods of the Canaanite peoples through the worship of those gods at those high places. Usually the high places were just hilltops where they had altars or some kind of means of worshiping the false gods. They should have been destroyed, but obviously they were not. And it became a great stumbling block to the people of Israel. But God had commanded Joshua to take all of those people, destroy them all, and for the most part, Joshua, up to this point, was obedient to the Lord. Now remember, some of them had escaped into fortified cities, and there was not a complete taking of all of the lives, but for the most part, Joshua did what God had commanded, and he was very successful, and it was a very swift conquering of the southern portion of the land of Canaan. Verse 41 says, And Joshua conquered them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. Now that's not the land of Goshen in Egypt. That's another territory in the wilderness territory of the southern part of the nation of Israel. All these kings and their land Joshua took at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. And then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. So they completed the task of conquering the entire southern half of the land of Canaan. Still much more work to be done. And we'll see that that work will be continuing 
as we continue reading through this portion of the book of Joshua. But again, this chapter stands out in a particular sort of way as the beginning of the conquest and to show that God was indeed with them by allowing us to see the wonderful miracles that God performed on behalf of his people. And that's something that we should be very, very excited about because our God is still the same God today as he was yesterday and has always been. So I'm convinced that because we serve such a wonderful, powerful God that there's nothing that can separate us from his love. Who can be against us if God is for us? Remember that question and remember that answer and let us live that way knowing that we have indeed become, by faith in Jesus Christ, more than conquerors.